Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Graham Weir. Graham is a hearing rehabilitation specialist in private practice in Western Australia and is also a personal friend of mine. Graham suffered a severe to profound hearing loss as a child living in a Queensland country town. Graham's story is remarkable and my conversation with Graham will extend over two hours. In the first hour, Graham will tell us the story of his personal journey with hearing loss and God's hand in his personal and professional life. In the second hour, Graham will talk about hearing aids and his professional insights into coping with hearing loss. If you have a friend or family member suffering from a hearing disability or tinnitus, you will find this information most helpful. The second conversation will be broadcast next time. Welcome, Graham. It's wonderful to see you again and to have the opportunity to talk with you on Life Learnings. Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Barry, for this opportunity. I'm pleased to be here. Graham, you were the first person in Australia with a profound hearing loss to obtain a private pilot's licence. Tell me about that. Okay, that was an interesting experience. I was a young man in my late teens working in a barber shop with my dad. And one day, a customer remarked that he was going to be taking up flying lessons and he suggested I have a go too. We didn't think about my hearing loss at that point, so we decided, okay, I'll have a go. Um, Went out to Gippie Airport, took a trial flight, I got hooked. I loved it. But then, I had to apply for a student pilot's licence before I could even begin to learn to fly. I had to contact the Civil Aviation Department in Melbourne in those days. Well, it took them 12 months to answer my request to become a student pilot. I got a letter from them. I've still got that letter. And they said, thank you very much for your patience. You're the first profoundly deaf person in Australia to ever apply for a private pilot's licence. We really we can't find any reason why you can't learn to fly except we have to put a provision on the back of your licence that says you must use your hearing aid for all conversations at ground level related to flying. They didn't say anything about having to use my hearing aid in the plane, which, of course, that was pretty necessary. So I did have difficulty trying to communicate with the instructor in the plane. It got so bad he would just point in various directions, what he wanted me to do. <laughs> if I didn't do it right, he'd slam me in the rib with his elbow. He <laughs> got through to me one way or another. Anyway, we had to do a lot of landing practice. And one day I was landing the plane, and of course he was a stickler for getting the plane down smoothly without bumps. And one of the things he wanted me to do, which I continually forgot to do every time I landed a plane, was to look out to the side of the fuselage over the nose so I could see the ground a bit better and plant the plane a little bit better. Well, on this particular day, I landed the plane smoothly, really smoothly, but I forgot to look out the side window again. So after I landed the aircraft, he was so frustrated because he couldn't talk to me, he got out of my head and slammed it against the side window of the aircraft. <laughs> but we, got, we managed to get through in spite of those things. So how long did you fly for? Uh, I probably flew for about four or five years as a part-time thing. You wanted to become a commercial pilot, didn't you? I did. Was that a step too far? 
It was a step too far because in country aerodromes you can fly without having to rely on the radio. But to fly inside controlled airspace was too hard because the the uh, aircraft controllers spoke like Donald Duck. <laughs> 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 they were very fast, very much in a hurry, and you, you didn't dare ask them to repeat anything. And I realised at that point I'm never going to be able to be a commercial pilot because I just can't understand these things. So after a few years of doing it, it just became too expensive, so I gave it up. It was a nice hobby. It was a great confidence builder at the time, but uh, that was the end of that. Graham, you were eight when you suffered a severe to profound hearing loss from contracting meningitis. Tell me about the experience. Okay. Um, I've become very sick with with meningitis. I was at home and I can remember one morning waking up and calling out to mum. I couldn't hear anything. And I thought at the time, I didn't realise it was my hearing, I thought I'd lost my voice. So I tried to scream louder and louder to get some sound out of my throat. I still couldn't hear anything. And I thought I'd, I'd lost my voice, something's wrong. So I'm trying to shout and get more air out of my throat so I could, I could actually hear myself talking. When my mother walked in the door with a concerned look on her face, real frowning, and her lips began to move, I still couldn't hear anything. And then the shock hit me that it wasn't my voice I'd lost, it was my hearing. Well, I don't remember much of what happened after that, except I do remember trying to beat things with a a stick to make a noise that I could actually hear. They sent me to school for about three or four months, maybe more than that now, without a hearing aid, because I think the doctor thought that if he left me alone for a while, the years would improve because with meningitis, I don't think it was actually the meningitis that destroyed the hearing. I think it was the heavy doses of antibiotics that destroyed the hearing because we know today that high doses of antibiotics can be toxic to the ear. So we think that's what did it. The right ear was completely destroyed. The left ear, it was a severe to profound hearing loss um, and that caused enormous problem. This is 1956 in country Queensland. How did you contract meningitis? Okay, I think I developed it because we lived in an old Queenslander house, rented it. It was on stumps, probably about four or five feet off the ground. No carpet on the floor, just floorboards and a bit of lino. The lino didn't even go to the edge of the room. And the block underneath the house was wet, constantly wet. And I think the wind would come along and blow the carpet up, blow the uh, lino up. And I think that's how I got it. The meningitis nearly killed you. And they, of course, had to give me those high doses of antibiotics to kill the meningitis. But in the process, it knocked out my hair. Mm. I'm thankful that's all it did. So it saved your life. Yes. But you lost your hearing that's at correct. that point. Now, losing your hearing can have a tremendous impact on your life. I want you to tell me about the impact that it had on your social life and your friendships. It had a dramatic impact on my social life because all of a sudden I found it was much more difficult to make friends with people, especially during the time when I went to school without a hearing aid. I couldn't hear a thing. I was totally deaf in a normal hearing school. 
I can remember one occasion when I was standing underneath the school just watching the kids lunchtime and I got this vague sense of dread. I slowly turned my head to the left just in time to see a fist heading from my face. Of course I instinctively ducked and the boy who'd swung his fist at me, evidently he'd been talking to me or calling out to me and I, I didn't respond so he thought he'd knock some sense into me. He missed my face and slammed his fist full force into a concrete post that I was standing next to. He howled in pain. I'd actually heard the howl. I think it was the first sound I had ever heard after going deaf. Mm. He disappeared. Everybody came and attended to him because he was screaming his head off. I just wandered away. Um, And uh, he never turned up for about six months. Disappeared. And when he did come back, he had a sling on his arm, a metal brace on his arm from his elbow to his tips of his fingers and rubber bands on every finger. And uh, no one ever took a pot shot at me after that. But he became a good friend after that. Mm. Tell, tell me some more about your time at school. OK. Um, I was always bottom of the class. That's because you couldn't hear. Because I couldn't hear, I couldn't keep up with what was going on. Teachers wouldn't face the blackboard, wouldn't face me, wouldn't face the uh, class. They would often write on the blackboard and talk at the same time. And every time I did that, of course, I was totally out of it. So this had a devastating impact on your learning. I did. It really got me behind. I barely scraped through my grades. And I can remember by the time I got to grade eight, which in those days was an intermediate grade you did before you went to high school, uh, I was in manual arts class one day and I got hit on the head with a block of wood. Somebody had thrown a block of wood at me to get my attention. I, of course it hurt. I turned around and see it was the teacher who thrown the book, who was thrown the wood. He was standing at the door with a group of students, obviously wanted to go out or something, or he was yelling out at the top of his voice at me and I never heard him over the top of the machines. So he decided to get my attention by throwing this block of wood at me and hitting me in the head. Boy, did that make me cranky. I felt like picking up that block of wood and aiming it straight through his eyes. Mm. Unfortunately, I didn't do that. You were very much the odd person out in that situation. Mm. Also, you had um, uh, an attachment to radio. You used to like listening to radio. Yes, I did. One of the things I used to enjoy before I lost my hearing was listening to radio programs in my dad's barbershop. Uh, after I lost my hearing, of course, I couldn't do that anymore. And this was the days before TV. I didn't have anything else. It was just radio or nothing. You would go to country dances too. What was That's it right. like going to a country dance? That was pretty frustrating because like all young people at those, age, at those days, I, I used to go to country dances to try and meet other people, especially the girls. But, of course, they would shun me because I had a box hearing aid with a cord and a big doorknob of hearing aid sticking out of my ear, so I was shunned pretty much. People didn't want much How to much could me. you hear at that stage? Well, I could hear noises, uh, but the hearing aids in those days were pretty rough. They, they just amplified everything. And at a country dance, for example, all I would get was a lot of noise. To try and understand anybody in that environment was, was impossible. Pretty isolating, isn't it? Oh, very much so. So I'd often make inappropriate responses or wouldn't talk to people, so I think I was probably seen as a social recluse. Um, 
stuck up or something, wouldn't talk to people. Mm. Now, you got to grade eight. It was apparent that your education wasn't successful. And your father suggested to you that you join him and learn a trade, and in this case, to become a barber. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, that was a great experience. Um, in a barber shop, you can't think too much about yourself. You have to make the customer happy. And my dad was pretty good at that, keeping people happy. He was always busy. He always had a shop full of people. And it was my job, even though I was hearing impaired, I had to talk to people, make sure they were happy, comfortable in the barber's barber's chairs. I did the right thing, cutting their hair. I think I also learned to lip read by watching people's faces in the mirror because I couldn't really stop working to turn around and look at their faces. Mm -hmm. So I had to look at them in the mirror, and I think I learned lip reading at that point in time. And that clearly helped you. You were yes. able, you had the confidence at least it to attempt yes. to, to talk with other people. Now, this was the time when you established your first business. Uh, Tell me about that. That was interesting. I was sitting in the barber chair, in the barber chair one day reading a, a magazine. It was quiet, no customers. And I noticed its advert to start your own business making rubber stamps. So I thought, oh, that'd be a good idea. I could do that at home. Dad looked at it with me. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you buy the equipment and have a go? He was very encouraging in that respect. So I did that. I bought this bit of piece, this apparatus, and I started learning to make rubber stamps at home. And uh, being entrepreneurial-minded, I decided to contact a local printer and ask him if he'd like some rubber stamps made locally. Of course, he took up the idea. He thought that was a good idea, especially for a young fellow who wanted to be a bit more entrepreneurial. So he started ordering rubber stamps off me. That kicked it off. Then I got the local news agents involved, and that kept me busy at night, making rubber stamps under the house. And eventually, I had written to news agents and printers all over Queensland, and I was getting a a sack full of these uh, rubber stamp orders every morning in the mail, which kept me busy, Constantly, it got to the point where I had to leave the barber shop and work on this full time. So that was a great experience. I did that for a few years. And uh, eventually, a competitor from Brisbane came and brought my little business out. So that was a great start to entrepreneurial activity. And this also gave you the money to do your, your flight training. It did. That's right, it did. At the exorbitant rate of $12.50 an hour in those days, now, you wanted to become a commercial pilot, but you weren't able to continue because you couldn't uh, hear the radio while you were flying. Yes. You couldn't understand the radio communication. And really, you couldn't afford to go on with flying unless you were getting an income from it. So that really put an end to one of your first major motivations, which was to, to be a pilot. Yes, that's right. And then you had a succession of jobs after you sold your stamp business and you moved to Brisbane Tell me the sorts of jobs that you did in Brisbane. They were mostly uh, factory jobs. Um, I sold plastic signs for a while. I didn't do too well at that. I actually sold real estate for a little while. Um, And one of the things I did sell too was uh, cladding on the sides of houses. Remember that stuff that used to put on, they used to put that on fibre houses to make Mm -hmm. them look like they were made out of timber or bricks? Yes. I used to sell that stuff for a while. That was a disaster. And one day I, I got a job. The most stable job I had was in a, a plastic signs factory, operating a pentagraph machine, making plastic signs and engraving. 
And I was doing this one day. It was a pretty rough sort of a place. People were rude. And I remember one day getting a thump on the back of the head. Some guy had punched me on the back of the head. You're, sitting, off my you're, machine. you're sitting at your desk. I was sitting at my desk working this machine. And this guy comes along and goes, whack, punches me in the back of the head, knocked me off my stool. And of course, there's a big commotion after that. The boss comes running out, other workers jump on this guy because he was going berserk. They jump on this guy and drag him off to the office. Somebody had stuck something on the back of his shirt to be, as a joke. He took exception to it, thought that I did it, so he decided to flatten me. And that cost him his job at the point in time. And, and also, I think it, that pretty much unsettled me, and I thought to myself, this, this is not working. I can't stay in this environment forever. I've got to get out of here. I've got to do something about my education again. So this punch was the motivation to get out of the, the, the cycle of jobs that you were involved yes. in. I said it was dead end. What did you do next? I decided I had to do something about my education and I applied for entry into adult matriculation classes. In those days, the government was making a push to get mature age students into university. So I applied to do this, this job at, uh, not this job, this, this course in adult matriculation. I got through that, okay, and believe this, in spite of the fact my lecturer looked like Santa Claus with a great big bushy beard. I could hardly lip read him. That was another story. But I finally managed to get through that. And I actually got into university to study psychology. You'd, you'd received some vocational counselling at this point and you'd been to a psychologist and they showed you that you had the aptitude to do one of two things. One was psychology and the yes. other one was audiology. Yes. How did you get into uni? I got into uni to, as a mature age student, I got in the year that the government abolished fees for first-year students. We're talking about the early 1970s now. That's right. The government abolished the fees for first-year students. And the next year, they applied quotas to first-year students. So in that gap, thousands of people got into university. And I can remember my first-year psychology class had nearly a 1,000 students in it. Um, but I, I, I quickly came unstuck in there because uh, I got behind very easily because, again, the lecturers were talking to the blackboard instead of talking to the class. In those days, there was really no provision, was there, for a person with a, a severe, profound hearing loss? No, none at all. There was no support mechanisms in no, place? nothing. So that meant that you were going to be struggling. So tell me a little bit more about that experience of university. What was it like? Okay, I, I could see that I was coming unstuck, especially with statistics, the study of statistics. I was missing the point that the lecturer was giving in the class, so I asked him if he would kindly give me some extra time privately to tutor me, bring me up to speed with this because I wasn't hearing well. And he was quite happy to do that. But when I started having sessions with him, he began to see just how far behind I really was. And he got a bit frustrated, and I think instead of trying to figure out a way to help me catch up, he got angry. And he said, who let you into university? You've got no right to be here. You're a disruption to my class and to me. You're slowing me down. I'm going to get you thrown out of university. And he went to administration and attempted to do that. But, of course, they, they wouldn't come to that party because they're a bit more sympathetic. They shifted me to another class, a different lecturer. 
And that was a, uh, a, a turning point again. This other lecturer was much more sympathetic, spoke more carefully, and I was able to follow his lectures much better. Now, university was a turning point in your life, wasn't it? Yes. You found Christianity there. Tell me about that. Okay. At that point in life, I was very much an atheist. In fact, one of the papers this new lecturer had asked the class to write was a frame of reference for cancelling. What would be our philosophy? What's our basis for cancelling people? And in that paper I had to write, I basically condemned Christianity as a mental crutch. I attacked Christians. And I said, these Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. They go to church on Sunday and confess their sins, go back next week and do the same thing. It's ridiculous. So I condemned Christianity. To my surprise, my lecturer gave me top marks for this paper. And he wrote on it, this is the best piece of written work I've received all year. And he wanted to talk to me about it. And boy, did my ego go up. That really boosted the confidence. He invited me home for dinner, which made the thing even worse. My ego got even worse. <laughs> he had a thousand students in the class. So I went home to his house for dinner. And during that interview at his home, he congratulated me for my work and my writing skills and all that sort of thing. But then he challenged me. And he said, you know, what you've said about Christianity is correct. But he said, they're not all the same. They don't all teach the same things. You need to do more research. I'd like to give you a commentary on the Bible that will help you get started. He gave me a book that set me on a track of research. The name of the book was The Great Controversy, and it told the history of Christianity right through to the end of the world, which was the most mind-blowing piece of written material I'd ever read in my, in my life. It challenged my perception of Christianity. You decided to become baptised. Yes. Tell me about the week before you were baptised. Okay, the week before my baptism, one of the things that I enjoyed in church was after church I had a fellowship or potluck lunch in the local botanical gardens in Brisbane. And in that environment I found quite a number of people, including yourself, who would talk to me and I, I would find that I was able to get quite good third-level communication in that environment. What's third-level communication? We're going to come back to that later. That's the third level of communication is the meaningful level where you can talk about the things that matter to your life, your, your personal attitude, your feelings, your goals. So it's not just talking about the weather or just chit-chat? No, it's not just superficial discussion. It's meaningful mm. discussion. Mm. I found people who would listen. You were one of them. And we talked about those things. I really appreciated that week after week after week. But the week before I was baptised, a strange thing happened. Everybody seemed to be busy talking to other people. And I was left by myself, uh, still among the group, but with no one to talk to. And all of a sudden I had this overwhelming feeling of isolation once again that had come back to me, feeling a bit despondent. But then a voice seemed to come into my head, a thought came into my head, Graham, why are you being baptised? Because you love the fellowship, because you love the communication, or because you love me. What would you do if a week after your baptism I was to take you away from here, you were never to see another Christian again? 
Would you still stand up for me? Would you still worship me? Would you still witness for me? That was a pretty profound thought. I had to think about that. And finally I said, yes, Lord. Whatever it takes, let's do it. And that experience made me feel that I was becoming a Christian, not because of people, not because of churches. Certainly they've had a role to play in the conversion process. But I was becoming a Christian because of Christ and what he'd done for me. Mm. And that would supersede any experience I had with people or churches. Yeah. Now, Christianity had an impact on your life. What was some of the things that Christianity did for you? It's not, not that you, as you were just saying, not that you became a Christian because of what it could do for you, but what was the impact that it had on your life? Well, the first impact was it totally changed my, he- my perception of my hearing loss. Uh, secondly, it changed my attitude to life. It gave me a different attitude to people. It gave me a much broader perspective, a more universal perspective. It taught me where I've come from, what I'm here for, and where I'm going to. It gave me a purpose in life that I never had before. I could see an end from the beginning. I could Mm. see a purpose in life. Mm. Now, you'd suffered a lot of frustration in your life, a lot of isolation, social isolation and frustration. Mm. You now become a Christian and your attitudes are changing. And at this point, you're working at Mancravat Teachers College in in Brisbane in the audiovisual department, and you met an American lecturer who was interested in your story because you had told him your story about dissatisfaction with university life. What did he do for you? He set me on a path of research that helped me find universities in the United States that did two things. They made provisions for students with hearing loss and secondly, they had the courses related to hearing loss so I could study hearing loss as a professional and make a career path out of it. I'd become quite frustrated with Queensland University at that point in time because I'd realised I wasn't learning anything about hearing loss there. I was the one doing the explaining about the effects of hearing loss to the lecturers. And I realised this wasn't going to go anywhere. Even if I did become a psychologist, it wouldn't equip me to help other hearing impaired people. I think in fairness we should say that most universities were pretty much in the same boat at the time. Things have changed dramatically since since then. But you were sort of prior to that change taking place. That's right. I was one of the early pioneers, I think. Now, there were only several universities in the United States which fitted these criteria. That's right. But you decided to go to a particular one. Which one was that? That was Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. Now, that was specifically set up for people with deafness, wasn't it? Yes, that was established by the former president, Abraham Lincoln, during the middle of the Civil War. It's a pretty astonishing feat when you think about it. Mm. So the institution was over 200 years old. It was primarily for the education of the deaf, but it had evolved into an institution where people could study, do advanced studies about deafness. That was the graduate school, which I got into. And they had their undergraduate school for deaf students. So you wanted to go to university but in the United States, but you didn't have the money. What did you do? My American friend at Mount Gravatt, he taught me how to find money to do this, to, to write to philanthropic trusts around Australia to try and raise funds to pay for the education. 
It took me two years of letter writing to get through the task he'd given me. And finally, I discovered the university in the United States. I finally had contact with uh, organisations who offered money. One of those organisations was uh, Quota International, a group of businesswomen. Um, and there were others. There was the South Brisbane Rotary Club also helped a lot with that. So um, the money, the money's coming in. Yes. You apply to Gallaudet and uh, then you get a letter. What was in that letter? Well, before I even got that letter, I need to backtrack a bit because I had been approached by the Quota Club. They responded to one of my applications, saying they would like to give me quite a large sum of money to go there, and they invited me to come and speak at one of their dinners to talk about what I intended to do and receive this cheque. Well, a week before I was to go and talk to these people, I received this letter in the mail from Gallaudet. When I opened it, my jaw fell to the floor because they were actually rejecting my application on the basis of student numbers. They didn't have a quota. So that really upset me. I contacted the people at the quota club and said, look, I just can't go and talk to your meeting. I can't do this. I've just been rejected by the university. I can't now go along to your group and accept money for something I, I can't do. And they said an amazing thing to me. They said, look, don't you worry about it. You come to the meeting, you accept the cheque, and we'll take care of it. Which pretty much astonished me. I thought, how are you, a little Rotary Club in Brisbane, going to influence what's happened in the United States the world away with this university? So I still said to her, I said, look, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. She said, all right, you don't have to worry about it. I'll go for you, and I will accept the cheque on your behalf. Wow. Okay, she did that. And I didn't find out what actually happened until I actually got to university in the USA some months later. And I've been there for a few months. And the You did get a second letter, didn't you? Ah, yes, let me backtrack a bit. So I accepted that cheque. I didn't know what to do. I had money, no university to go to. And this was during my conversion experience. I'm driving across the freeway in Brisbane, across the Brisbane River Bridge in the freeway, thinking about all this, being quite stressed out about it. And I threw up my hands and I said, OK, Lord, you take care of this. I don't know what's you going on. You mean you took your hands off the steering wheel? <laughs> I did for a few seconds. <laughs> I gave up. I put it in God's hands. OK, Lord, you take control. I don't know what's going to happen. If you don't want me to go to the United States, that's fine. That's your business. I don't know what I'm going to do with this money. I leave it in your hands. And after that, I just felt a peace come over me. I didn't worry about it anymore. But then, two weeks later, I received another letter from the same university, Gallaudet. Puzzled by this, I opened the letter. And lo and behold, they decided they'd reverse their decision and decided to accept me in university. This was unheard of. I couldn't understand this. But of course, I thank God. I thought, felt God had his hand over all this. Graham, what was going on in the background to change the initial decision that was communicated to you to reject your application to one of acceptance? I didn't find out until I got to the United States. I was in Gallaudet for about six months. 
I'd been invited to speak at the international headquarters of Quota in Washington, D.C. as a sponsored student for that year. When I went along to the meeting, I was greeted by the president, the international president, who it turned out happened to be a lady from Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Uh, she was quite amused by my shock and uh, she explained to me what happened. She said, well, really, what happened was that we've been giving money to Gallaudet for years for hearing-impaired students. And when your application came up, we thought, beauty, we've now got an Australian student. When your application was rejected, we got pretty angry about that because we've been giving money to this place for years. Now we're going to get an Australian student. They rejected purely because they say they've got too many students. So we went to see the president of the college and we said to him, look, we've been giving you guys money for years for students, hearing impaired students. Now when we finally get a student from Australia and you reject that student just because of quotas, numbers on classes, we're not happy about that. If you don't accept this guy, we're going to stop giving this institution money. That's when everything changed. That's highly motivating to a president, I'm sure. Yes, and, and amazing to me because I'd prayed that prayer in the car, driving across the freeway in Brisbane, saying, OK, Lord, I give it all up to you. I don't know what's going to happen. And God's hand was busy. From that time, even at that very moment, his hand was busy in the United States, changing the situation. Mm. Amazing and they story. didn't even know about it. Yeah, amazing story. Indeed. You had some alarms in the, in the room. Tell me about those alarms. Oh, that was very interesting. Because I was in a high-rise building full of deaf people, it was pretty useless using audible fire alarms. So every room, every dorm room, had a strobe light in the ceiling. And next to that strobe light was three coloured lights, a red one, a yellow one, and a green one. If a strobe light would flash and a coloured light would flash, a green light would flash in sequence, out of sequence after that, it meant that someone was at your door pushing the bell. If the yellow light flashed, there was a message for you downstairs at reception. If the red light flashed, it was a fire alarm, you had to evacuate the building. Well, this went off in the first week of winter. There was snow outside, freezing cold. Everybody had to get out of the, out of the building, many of them in their pyjamas, and stayed in the snow. While we waited for the fire brigade, the ambulance, the police to come along, inspect the whole building, finally find there's nothing wrong, tell everybody to go back to bed. Well, if that happened once, it happened three or four times in that one week. And the administration got pretty upset about this, that this can't go on. And in the United States at that time, they didn't have the square box with the glass window that you break and press the button to set off the fire alarm. They just had these handles you pull, and this guy's it on the wall. And of course, you knew, what, you knew what happened. Some wise guy walked past in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, and pulled his handle, set off the whole building, then take off, see? Mm -hmm. Have a good old laugh. Well, they got smart. And the administration put a little capsule of indelible ink on that lever. So when the guy who pulled the lever pulled it, he got squirted with his indelible ink on his hand. So, OK, everybody gets out in the snow. We're all required to hold out our hands. And, of course, the guy with the indelible ink gets nabbed and kicked out of university there and then. 
And that solved the problem. They solved the problem. Mr. Mm. We never had it after that. When you got to Gallaudet, there was one staff member who thought that you didn't belong there. So that probably related to the fact that the decision had been changed. Yes. About your enrolment. Yes, that's guy. That that's right. Now this guy, this guy, um, one of the lecturers, seemed to take a dislike to me for some reason. I didn't know why. I didn't know what was the matter with him. He just took. He just didn't like me. And I thought this guy's after me. He doesn't like me. He wants to get me out of here. And no doubt he was the one that was told by the president he had to accept me into the college. He was the one who was determining who got in and who didn't. Yes. And he got told by administration he had to accept me, so he took exception to that. But God's hand was at it again because a couple of weeks later this guy left the university, disappeared. And the rest of it was plain sailing for you? Plain sailing. Mm. Got top marks. What subjects did you study at uh, Gallaudet? I studied more psychology, more counselling, counselling in depth. Um, I studied the culture of deaf people, how hearing loss impacts the lifestyle. I also studied audiology while I was there. I did some audiology courses there. And also, um, during the summer vacation, which is 11 weeks in the US, I was able to tour around the whole United States. I did a project researching hearing rehabilitation programs throughout the USA. I continued that in the UK when I left the USA a couple of years later. So that was, that was a fascinating experience. I got, a, I got hired, actually, to give lectures to audiology students simply because I'd come from this famous place called Gallaudet. Now, you performed pretty well at university. Mm, got top marks. You completed an MA in counselling for the deaf. Mm. And you've told me about some pretty amazing people that you met there. Sure. Tell I me was, about some of them. I was involved, one person in particular, I was involved with a deaf church group. And this group was all, were all deaf. The pastor himself was deaf and would give the sermon in sign language. All the communication was done in sign language because you had to learn sign language at Gallaudet or you, you would get kicked out. That was a native language there. You had to know that. So all this was very good experience. But there used to be a, a deaf-blind girl. There was a few deaf-blind students at Gallaudet, but there was one particular deaf-blind girl, been deaf and blind from birth. She was well-known as outstandingly able to, do, to, to dissect a frog and tell the component parts in biology class just by touch. Totally deaf, totally blind, but excelling academically. One day this girl turned up in my uh, church, but on this particular day, we had a hearing person giving the sermon. His sermon was being interpreted into sign language by an interpreter. But sitting in the audience was this deaf-blind girl. Next to her was another deaf girl who was interpreting the signs back into deaf-blind language, which is a touch, signs underneath the hand by touch. This deaf-blind lady was able to follow quite easily in fact, she, she kept coming back to church and was eventually baptised and converted. What did that experience of, of graduating from Gallaudet do for you? That was a marvellous confidence builder. It gave me a purpose in life. It gave me a profession I thought I could follow once I got back in Australia. It certainly increased my social milieu dramatically because I was in a university campus. 
I made lots of friends there, some of them hearing people, some of them deaf people. The church family were very, very supportive. So my confidence really went back to normal, basically. I'm Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Graham Weir. Graham has been telling us the story of his personal journey with hearing loss and God's hand in his personal and professional life. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Graham will continue his story. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia all one word dot org dot au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Graham Weir. Graham has been telling us the story of his personal journey with hearing loss and God's hand in his personal and professional life. In this part of the program... Graham will focus on his personal and professional life after returning to Australia from studying overseas. Graham, what happened to you professionally when you came back to Australia? I couldn't get work, uh, even with my American degree, even in a school for the deaf, because at that time in Queensland they had an antiquated law that prohibited anybody with a hearing loss from functioning or working in a school for the deaf. They couldn't change that law as much as they tried to. So I, um, I found myself working in a, a school, a normal school, as a teacher's aide in a manual arts class. Uh, that frustrated me pretty much, and then I decided I needed to go back to university and try and have another go and expand my qualifications. So I'd met a guy in the, in the UK on my tour home, in my uh, rehab tour, who was actually moving to Australia to become a professor of audiology at Macquarie University. So I contacted him, he was there by then, and applied to enrol as a student in the audiology program. I was the first deaf person in Australia to ever do that. Um, So I took that on, but halfway through that degree, six months into the degree, it was just a 12-month program, I came unstuck again at university because in Australia in those days, even by then, they still didn't have provision for hearing impaired students to get to university. They were putting in ramps for people in wheelchairs and blind people. They, had, they started to have a few aids for the blind, but nothing for the hearing impaired. Uh, and, of course, I found several lectures. They were, again, writing on the blackboard while looking at the blackboard instead of looking at the class. I came unstuck and I decided halfway through that program I couldn't stand this anymore. I wasn't going down that road again. Mm. I got offered a job at the Deaf Society in New South Wales as a welfare worker, and I quit the university to do that. Tell me about your involvement with deafness resources. 
Okay, I, at working at the Deaf Society, I made contact with several members of the Deaf community, several leaders of the Deaf community there, who were pretty frustrated about the progress of Deaf education in this country. I'll tell you more about that in the professional discussion we have in the next program. But to cut a long story short, they wanted to get resources on options in deaf education into the hands of parents and teachers around the country. Uh, so we started a project because I knew there were tremendous resources available in the United States. So I volunteered to, to, to help them set up an organization whose task was to import these resources from the U.S. and market them Australia-wide to direct mail marketing to try and get some of these resources in the hands of people. That organisation became known as Deafness Resources Australia and it became quite prominent for over a number of years. It helped change the shape of deaf education in this country. Mm. Graham, around this time you met Diane and you married. Tell me about this change in your life. That was a dramatic change, to say the least. That changed my perspective because by that time I was 36 years old. Mm. I'd lived as a bachelor all of my life. I had very little experience with females. So it was a real steep learning curve for me to learn to pay attention, to listen to females and, you know, make her part of the decision-making process instead of doing everything to suit me. And it would have been a, a difficult thing also for Diane to oh, yeah. adapt to communicating with you as well. Yes, that's the amazing thing. She didn't take any notice of my deafness because she had other friends who were deaf or blind or had handicaps. She didn't see the disability. She saw the spiritual attitude. Mm. And then we did have a unique spiritual attitude which we shared together. I should say to those who are listening, it's a pretty amazing experience driving with Graham and Diane in the car because Graham sits in the front and looks into the mirror and lip reads his wife sitting in the back. That's right. It's a pretty amazing story you've got, Graham. This, this, this lifelong struggle with this, this disability. Maybe, maybe God could have prevented you from having that hearing loss, but the hearing loss, although you struggle against it, also gave you opportunities to do things that you might never have done if you had retained your hearing. Mm. Part of my conversion experience, I think, brought me to the realisation that, OK, God could have lifted his little finger to take this hearing loss off me. Mm. I don't believe God makes disabilities happen. I don't think he makes people deaf or makes them blind or anything else. Well, the else. Bible says that he came, Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. That's right. And uh, the, the Apostle John said that basically I, I just want you to prosper and be in health. Yes. So that's God's will for us. Yes. But he did permit this to take place, didn't he? He permitted it to happen. And I think I saw in that a divine purpose I couldn't comprehend. Hmm. And I, it made me change my attitude because I realised, well, okay, Lord, I'm hearing impaired. I'm severely hearing impaired. You've allowed me to become sufficiently hearing impaired to really experience the frustrations of deafness, to, to experience the social disadvantages, the educational disadvantages. You've given me all these negative experiences, but you've, you've decided not to lift your finger off the disability. We've prayed many times that you would take the hearing loss away from me. You haven't done that. You've decided not to. So, okay, Lord, let's go. Mm. Let's use my hearing loss as an advantage, mm. as an instrument of witness, mm. as a testimony, as a tool of progress that will touch other people's lives and help them in a way I could never have been able to do if I didn't have this disability. Mm. And, and uh, that, that was a fundamental motivator 
Now, after New South Wales, you went to Tasmania to work for a period. What did you do there? I was a welfare worker for the northern part of Tasmania, for the Tasmanian Deaf Society. And you came back to New South Wales for family, family, reasons. For family yeah. reasons. Where did coming back to New South Wales take your career? It took my career in a different direction. Um, I, because I had a degree in rehabilitation counselling, I was a qualified rehab counsellor, I was able to get work as a rehabilitation counsellor with the Commonwealth Rehabilitation Service in Sydney. And that job, that specific job that they gave me was, gave me responsibility for deaf people all over New South Wales. Mm. The department had a charter to try and put deaf people, hearing impaired people back in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so it was my job to try and coordinate that. I ended up training staff all over the state. We had about 50 odd units around the New South Wales I had to go to all these different units and train the rehab counselling staff how to deal with hearing impaired and deaf people. You also established a part-time private practice. This was your first private practice, wasn't it? Yes, I did because I'd realised by that time I had enough skills to get back into audiology, which I think was really my first love. Hmm. And I had enough training now from the audiology I'd done in the United States plus the half of the diploma I'd done at Macquarie University. I knew how to set up a practice, how to how to fit hearing aids and all that stuff. You went to Western Australia and you set up, you worked there for a couple of years and then you did your private practice, which has, which has grown considerably. While you were in Western Australia and where you still live, you got involved in a humanitarian project in India. Yes. What was that about? A friend of mine from New South Wales, Ian Barrett, and his wife, Suwali, who comes from the state of Mizoram in India, asked me to go and help their father, who was 100 years old, who had hearing problems over there. We sent some technology over for him, but then they also invited me to go to India and run hearing clinics. So I took up his offer, and, uh, which he offered to fund, and we were able to get hearing aids from the Australian government, older hearing aids that had been returned by pensioners who refurbished them for me, and we were able to go over there and over a period of four trips every two years from the year 2000, 2006. We took a team of audiologists and doctors and uh, ran hearing clinics and we were able to fit over a thousand people with hearing aids. Graham, when I look back on your life, I think it's a pretty amazing life. It's not my journey. I don't know how I would have dealt with all of the issues that you've had to deal with. And you've come out of it pretty well. You have a successful business, a successful marriage, a spiritual life a focus on other people. Tell us what you've learned from your life that you think we all ought to know. Well, I think if we put our hands in our, our disabilities or our shortcomings in God's hands, he will turn it around. Mm. I've concluded it's not ability that matters. It's availability. It doesn't matter what your disability is, what your handicap is, what your shortcomings are. If we put ourselves in God's hands, he will reproduce in us the fruits of the Spirit, which is the transformation of mind and character. Mm. As it says in Galatians 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So he changes our life, he changes our perspective, he changes our attitudes, he changes our goals, and recreates in us a new mind mm. based on these fruits of the Spirit. Mm. Graham, would you like to um, pray for our listeners with a special reference to those who are struggling with tinnitus or a hearing, a hearing loss um, and the families of people who are having to support them? Would you do that for us? Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for our opportunity to conduct this interview. We hope, Lord, we pray that it will give courage to those who have suffered hearing loss themselves or who are family members or friends of others who have suffered hearing loss and are struggling with the frustration these things produce. Please bless them, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon them. Open their hearts and minds to receive you as their only saviour. Realising that you are the only one who can solve all their problems. You may not lift the disability, but you will provide a means for that disability to be used in your service. Please bless them mightily, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Graham. I really appreciate your prayer. Graham, we've known each other now for about 40 years. Uh, you have really enriched my life with your friendship. And your life has given me an insight into what it's like to have a significant hearing loss. And uh, I think I'm more understanding of people with a hearing loss as a result of my association with you. So my own life has been personally enriched by yours, and I'd like to, I'd like to thank you for that. And I'd like to thank you for telling us your story today. I think it's an inspirational story, and I hope that people out there will find it inspirational and renew their courage if they're struggling with these sorts of issues, to renew their courage and keep going, and to put their hand in God's hands because he's the one who really made that difference in your life, wasn't Amen. it? Amen. Mm. Thank you, Barry. Lovely to have you today. I'm Barry Harker, and I've been talking with Graham Weir. Graham has told us the story of his personal journey with hearing loss and God's hand in his personal and professional life. In my second conversation with Graham, Graham will talk about hearing aids and his professional insights into coping with hearing loss. What's the title that we've given to this talk, Graham? Hearing aids, the good, the bad and the ugly. Okay. If you have a friend or family member suffering from a hearing disability or tinnitus, you'll find this information most helpful. The second conversation will be broadcast next week. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with Graham about his professional insights into coping with hearing loss and tinnitus. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. If I could choose guests to visit me and dine with me, Jesus would be on the top of my list. This is where Revelation 3.20 comes in. Jesus is speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus is standing outside the door of every person's heart, waiting for an invitation to enter. He promises to respond to any who open the door to him. If you want the greatest experience of your life, and you haven't already done so, invite Jesus into your heart and life today 
just now.